Well, good morning, everybody. Yo, did I hear yo? Yo! Um, so, uh, as Brenda mentioned during the prayer, as I dropped my book, um, uh, Pastor Dave is away, has been away for a, for a week, left last Monday, I think it was, um, and has been, believe it or not, at a monastery for the last week, um, really doing a lot of time uh, in um, prayer and meditation and in silence and simplicity to really connect with what God um, is uh, leading him to and leading us to as a church. And so um, he gave me this opportunity to be able to speak to you this morning, and I'm grateful for the chance to do that. Um, I also want to say um, just a, um, a warm thank you to all the mothers in this room and all those who have mothered whether mothers or not, but who have um, served that role in our lives, in my life, and so many lives in this room that have been touched. Um, thank you for all that you do, things that you have done, and may God bless you. May you know how, um, may you know his, his pleasure this morning for what you have done and how you have, you have loved others in his name. And I also want to um, just offer congratulations to our graduates. Um, it's exciting to be able to to share with you this time and to look forward to what God is doing in each of your lives. And, um, uh, you know, we know that God has great things in store for you. And, and I think that's um, a great segue into what we're going to be talking about this morning because I believe that God has great things in store for each of us. We're continuing our series on uh, by faith. And this morning, um, we want to, by faith, watch God make our lives bigger. And I want to start this morning by, by reading a section from a book that we're going to look at a little bit later as well. Uh, this is a book called Fast Living by Scott C. Todd. Um, but he starts the book with this interesting uh, story, this interesting metaphor. In the late 20th century, there was a story written by Lauren Isley called The Star Thrower that became popular among Christians. It goes like this. A man was walking along the beach when he saw a boy picking something up and throwing it into the ocean. Approaching the boy, he asked, What are you doing? Throwing starfish back into the ocean, he said. The surf is up and the tide is going out. If I don't throw them back, they'll die. Son, the man said, Don't you realize there are miles and miles of beach and hundreds of starfish? You can't make a difference. After listening politely, the boy bent down picked up another starfish, and threw it back into the surf. Then, smiling like the man, he said, I made a difference for that one. I've heard this story in several sermons. You probably have, too. It's a sweet story with the message that you can make a difference one at a time. But it's strong on individualism. Individual action resulting in individual rescue. Had the story been written for 21st century Christians, it might be quite different. Maybe it would go something like this. A man was walking along the beach when he saw a girl taking a picture of a starfish with her iPhone. <laughs> Approaching the girl, he asked, what are you doing? Uploading pictures of these stranded starfish to my Facebook page and asking friends to tweet the call to action. She said, the surf is up and the tide is going out. If I can get enough friends out here, we can get all these starfish back in the water before sunset. Little girl, the man asked, what does tweet mean? <laughs> the girl rolled her eyes. 
She bent down, picked up a starfish, and threw it back into the surf. Then she gave the man a wry, twinkly-eyed smile and said, If you want to help out, this is how you do it. Within hours, hundreds of children stormed the beach, and every starfish was rescued. The biggest difference between the man and the girl was that each of them was what each of them expected. The man did not expect that all the starfish could be rescued. He expected them to die. He thought the problem was too big that it was just reality for starfish. But the girl was not a hostage to such low expectations. And that made all the difference. What's the difference? Expectations. I believe sometimes we limit what we can accomplish because we don't expect enough of ourselves. And and even worse, we don't expect enough of God. The same was true for the Israelites. Um, If we we look at, at what they had to do, they had to move from low expectations to faith-filled expectation. If you remember where they were 40 years before the story that we've looked at over the last numerous weeks in Joshua, they were, they were, there were slaves in Egypt, right? They had nothing of their own. They had, no, they had no belongings. They had no home. They were slaves. But God brought them out of Egypt, and he miraculously delivered through the Egypt, from the Egyptians, take, takes them through the Red Sea, and God works amazing wonders on their behalf. And these people come to the borders of, of the promised land. They come to the Jordan and they stop. Because they look at the people in the land, they see them as giants, and they have low expectations. And so they don't, go, they don't go in. And they spend 40 years in the wilderness because of it. The next generation rises up, and they have different expectations. They trusted God, they crossed the Jordan, and they took possession of that promise. And by the time of the passage we're going to read today, they'd become, amazingly, the region's greatest nation. And they were living in this land of milk and honey. Their reality turned around when they put their faith in God, and they watched Him make their borders, as well as their lives, much bigger. This morning we're going to be reading from Joshua chapter 11, and also from Joshua chapter 12. Uh, feel free to follow along in your Bibles. Uh, if you have a smartphone or other type of device, you can pull up mygrace.church uh, and then find the, the tab for sermon notes. All, this, all the notes are in there. The links to the scriptures are there uh, and some other, uh, some other information. So I encourage you to, uh, to, uh, to utilize that. Well, let's start here with uh, Joshua chapter 11, starting in verse 16. So Joshua conquered the entire region, the hill country, the entire Negev, the whole area around the town of Goshen, the western foothills, the Jordan Valley, the mountains of Israel, and the Galilean foothills. The Israelite territory now extended all the way from Mount Halak, which leads up to Seir in the south, as far north as Baal-Gad at the foot of Mount Hermon in the valley of Lebanon. So Joshua took control of the entire land, just as the Lord had instructed Moses. He gave it to the people of Israel as their special possession, dividing the land among the tribes. So the land finally had rest from war. God had given them this expansive land, something they couldn't have have dreamed of 40 years earlier, something they couldn't have dreamed of just a few years earlier, wandering in the wilderness. I want to read from Joshua chapter 12, and and, and this may very well be the first and only time you ever see this scripture read in church. 
Um, but I'm going to read it because I really like it. Um, it says this, The following is a list of the kings that Joshua and the Israelite armies defeated on the west side of the Jordan, from Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon to Mount Halak, which leads up to Seir. These are the kings Israel defeated. The king of Jericho, the king of Ai near Bethel, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, the king of Gezer, the king of Debir, the king of Geder, the king of Hormah, the king of Arad, the king of Libna, the king of Adullam, the king of Makeda, the king of Bethel, and there's more. I'm going to stop there. In all, 31 kings were defeated. 31 kings. In only one generation... They went from slaves to defeating 31 kings. They went from being fearful to being strong. But the prior generation didn't do what the next generation did. They failed to do what the next generation did. So how did the next generation do it? How were they successful when the prior one wasn't successful? How did they do it? Well, that's the point. They didn't do it. God did it. They just had faith that God would follow through on what he said he would do. I wanted to showcase these scriptures for a reason. These are certainly not the usual scriptures that you preach from. I think you would agree. Um, Usually we're looking at scriptures that are inspiring, things that are challenging, um, things that are golden nuggets and maybe pithy sayings. The scripture has those things, but the scripture also has narrative. Narrative that draws us into the story, and we can learn so much of God from the story of the scriptures. And I wanted to look at this story because I I wanted us to see and understand the expanse of the change that happened in Israel in just one generation. They were a completely different people just 40 years later than they had been before. And it was a change brought about simply by believing that God would do what he said. By comparison, my faith can sometimes look pretty small, pretty weak. I'm afraid to trust in God for the little things when they trusted him in the face of 31 kings. In my own life, I haven't seen victories of this magnitude. And I think in my life and in our lives, if we haven't seen that, there can be two reasons for that. One can be a lack of faith... The other can be a lack of focus. Sometimes our faith is weak. Sometimes our faith falters. But but sometimes we don't have our eyes and priorities on those things requiring faith in the first place. We're not living a life that requires faith and we get caught up in our own concerns. And so a lack of faith and a lack of focus, I think actually they, they can feed on each other, kind of a downward spiral thing. Low faith can lead to low expectations. Low expectations can lead us to complacency. And if I'm complacent, then, then um, I'm not connecting with what God is doing around me. I'm not even focusing on what he's doing. I'm looking at my own life. And so if I'm not seeing God at work, I'm not believing he's going to be at work. And so my faith drops again. In the end, our lack of faith and our lack of focus can lead us to spend our time thinking about only our daily life, just the routine, just the, short ter- the short-term goals and our personal comfort. Very frequently, we don't exercise faith at all. In my own life, sometimes I I even structure my life in such a way that I don't need to operate in faith. I try to be self-sufficient when God is calling me to faith. And perhaps sometimes we also think that the problems of the world are too big. 
that there are too many starfish. And so we satisfy ourselves with throwing a few back and feeling bad about the ones that we can't help, at least for a little while until we go back to our comfortable routine. I believe God wants to break us free of the cycle of low faith and lack of focus. Do you remember two weeks ago, during our celebration Sunday, Pastor Dan, the founding pastor of this church, spoke briefly, and he reminded us that Jesus built his church to overwhelm the gates of hell. You remember him saying that? Jesus built his church to overwhelm the gates of hell. God did not intend us to seek safety. He designed us to be dangerous. We are supposed to be dangerous. Through the grace of God, the love of Jesus, and the power of the Holy Spirit, we're intended to be a threat to the evil and the despair and the injustice in the world. That's our calling. But if our lives are bound up in only temporal and earthly things, well, then they're not big enough. Our big idea this morning is that God intends our lives to be much bigger and much more meaningful than merely temporal and earthly pursuits. Much bigger, much more meaningful than just the simple day-to-day. God has bigger thoughts and he has bigger dreams and he has bigger goals for his people. So we're going to talk about those thoughts and dreams and goals this morning. First, God wants us to think bigger thoughts because if our thoughts are only for ourselves and for our own day-to-day life, then they're not big enough. Ask yourself honestly, as I've had to do on many occasions in my own life and recently certainly, how much of my time, how much of my life do I float through life? How much of my time is spent on the routine things? How much of my life is spent on, on just reacting to, come, to what comes at me? Versus how much time I spend doing something that's significant, something that matters, something with eternal significance. It's an interesting lens to look at the people of Israel in their 40 years in the wilderness from this, this viewpoint. Until they broke free of the, the, the chain of the lack of faith and the lack of focus, they were just wandering through their lives, wandering through the desert with no place to call home. Their destiny didn't change until they set their sights on God's promise. And the same is true for us. It's only when we yield our thoughts and our priorities to God's kingdom that we experience the great things that he has for us. Paul speaks of setting our sights on God in Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. He says this, Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth, for you died to this life. You died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. Set your sights on the realities of heaven. Think about the things of heaven, for you're dead to this life. You've got a better life, a more meaningful life, a more real life found in Jesus. This is about priorities. As Christians, we shouldn't be seeking after the same things that the world does. We know there's a much greater reality, and it's worth our time and our energies. Paul also wrote this to the Philippians. He said, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, 
think about such things. Paul is not just talking about the power of positive thinking. He's not just talking about that. He's talking about connecting with God in prayer, in meditation, and realigning our thoughts, our our reality, and our perspectives to the truth of His kingdom. Changing the way we think because we're viewing life from the way God wants us to view it. So how does that change my day-to-day? What difference does that make? If I'm thinking God's thoughts? Well, it may be the difference between judging my neighbors and seeing my neighbors as people that Jesus desperately loves. It's the difference between between me trying to keep up with the Joneses and me praying for the Joneses. It's the difference between thinking that the world is a lost cause and knowing that our primary cause as the people of Christ is to love this world in his name. That's the difference. You see, God does not lead us to small and meaningless thoughts. His spirit inspires great, noble, lovely, world-changing thoughts in his people. And he puts those thoughts in our head because he means us to do something. We need to believe, we need to believe that God has not changed. You know, I, I, think, I think we misread the Bible sometimes. We, we, we can read in awe of what God did in some of these amazing stories, what he did in the book of Joshua, what he did in the first century church, and we can read in awe of that, of all the great things God has done, but consciously or not, we can relegate that to the past. In essence, we're unwittingly saying, look how great God used to be. But when we say that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, when we say that God does not change, that applies not only to his character, that also applies to his power. And so we need to read stories like Joshua and Acts and other powerful narratives of the scriptures with the belief that even today, even today, God's people who walk in faith and in the power of his spirit can have the same sweeping influence that they did. Nothing has changed. Our God has not changed we should be having an impact on the world like they did because that's what God's call is for his church. I'll tell you, such dangerous thoughts as this can lead us to bigger dreams. We need to dream bigger dreams because if our dreams are primarily self-interested, then they're not big enough. What are my dreams about? Honestly, well, sometimes it's retirement. Sometimes it's my next vacation. Sometimes it's the things I'm wanting to buy. Sometimes it's better things than that. But too often, it's, it's, it's the smaller, simple, earthly things. God has bigger dreams for me. God has bigger dreams for all of us. You know, I think I realized something just within this last week, that um, Jesus planted a dream in the minds of his disciples just before he left this earth. It's called the Great Commission. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. Did you realize that he was planting a dream in their hearts? Because he wanted them to get a vision of his church. He wanted them to catch a vision for the church that he wanted to create. And not that many weeks later, the day of Pentecost, the church was born. The Spirit came down, and Peter's speaking to thousands of people. And he's telling them about how 
God had fulfilled this prophecy that, that, that he had poured out his spirit on men and women and that, and that they would see visions and dreams of the kind of world that God intended. And they were living that right then. That day was a great turning point in the tide of history. It truly was the birth of the church. And the dreams and the visions that God gave to that early church, they weren't small. They were big things. And 2,000 years later, nothing has changed. God still has a great vision for his people, and he still sends us into the world in his name. For those of you who know me, um, you know that a meaningful um, example of this being sent into the world for me is the fight to end extreme poverty in the world. I'm, I got to tell you, I'm bothered. I'm frustrated sometimes by the way we treat that as kind of a, what I want to say, as a joke or, or a hyperbole. Well, we're not trying to solve world hunger here, right? When people say that, we're not trying to solve world hunger. What they're saying is they're using it as a metaphor for something that's really hard or maybe impossible. It's a joke and it's hyperbole because most 21st century Americans, even Christians, believe that defeating global extreme poverty is really not achievable. I want to submit this morning that we have this belief not because we're right, but because we have low expectations. I want to tell you about a man named Bob Pierce. Bob was a Baptist minister who in the 1940s went as as an ambassador with Youth for Christ into China. And as I'm sure you can imagine, China in the 1940s was a very difficult place. He was astonished by the extent and the depth of the need that he saw there. And while he was in China, he met a number of women who had given their lives as missionaries to serve the children there in China. And, and one of these missionary women came and brought him a battered and abandoned child, carrying this girl in her arms. And, he, and she walked up to Bob and said, what are you going to do with her? And so Bob responded, and he started to support that particular girl from that point forward. Now, Bob Pierce could have stopped there. So many hungry, battered, abandoned children. So many starfish. But Bob Pierce sensed that he was not supposed to stop there. And so later he wrote this inscription into his Bible. You've probably heard this before. Let my heart be broken with the things that break the heart of God. That was Bob Pierce's prayer. And that prayer became a rallying cry in his heart. It became a dream to see the wrongs set right. And Bob Pierce's dream in 1950 led to the founding of World Vision International. Twenty years later, in 1970, Bob's dream birthed Samaritan's Purse. I don't know if you realize that both World Vision and Samaritan's Purse were founded by the same individual with a dream and a passion and not low expectations. 
Bob Pierce died in 1978, but these organizations that he founded are going stronger today than they have ever been. And every year they touch the lives of tens of millions of people in more than a hundred countries. That's what high expectations can do, people. I mentioned this book by Scott C. Todd. It's called Fast Living. The subtitle of the book is this, How the Church Will End Extreme Poverty. I love that subtitle, How the Church Will End Extreme Poverty. It doesn't say can, it says will. Scott put a faith statement on the cover of his book. Well, he has faith. He also has done research. He has studied, and he has learned something in his studies, and it's this. He truly believes that we have the ability to end extreme poverty in the world, as that is defined, but end extreme poverty in the world within 25 years. It's doable. Let me share with you some of the statistics from his book. In the past eight years, eight years, the number of kids dying from measles has declined by 78% because we're completing the work of immunizing every child. 22 countries have cut their malaria rate in half in only six years. They did it with insecticide-treated bed nets, access to better medicines, and spraying to kill mosquitoes. We used to say that 40,000 children die each day from preventable causes. Now it's down to 21,000. The number of children dying before their fifth birthday has been cut in half, and we did it in a generation, using a wide range of practical strategies from creating access to clean water to training skilled birth attendants. A third of the children who are uneducated because of poverty can now go to school. Literacy rates are climbing. These gains were made in less than 10 years. In 1981... 52% of the world's population lived in extreme poverty. Today that number is 26%. We have already cut the percentage of people living in extreme poverty in half, and we did it in one generation. The question is not, can we end poverty? The question is, how can we end poverty? I don't know about you, but I get excited about that. Jesus said, with God, all things are possible. And believe me, God cares about the hurting, the suffering. And if we are partnering with God in what he wants to do, and we're working in the passion that he's given us, and that drives our dream, and his spirit compels us forward, we can know that we are partnering with God to make what we thought was impossible, possible. What about grace? What about the dreams that we have here at Grace. We want to make a global impact. We also want to be known. We've talked about this several times over the last few weeks. We want to be known as the church that loves its community, that loves Oro Valley and Tucson. Dave's talked about that a number of times over the last few weeks, but I hope you realize that that isn't just Dave's vision. So many of us in that church have shared that vision, that desire, that dream for years. It's for that reason that Grace members have engaged deeply and given their hearts and effort and time and love to ministries like Alpha, 
like VBS, Friday Night Life, Grief Share, Divorce Care, Hope Spring, Catalina Village, Gospel Rescue Mission, Goshen, Sold No More, Arabian Oasis, Tucson Homeless Connect, Homeless Nights, Prison Ministry, Benevolence Missions. I've forgotten some. I know I have. That's a living out of the dream that God has given us to make a difference in this community. But let me tell you something. What we have seen here at Grace so far is an inkling. The small beginnings of what the impact that God can have us have in this community for him. I'm convinced of that. I'm convinced of it. How am I convinced of it? Why am I convinced of it? Because I believe that our faith vision is a dream from God. And God does not give false dreams and God does not give small dreams. He will make it happen if we follow after him in compassion and obedience. Once you have a dream to drive you, then you need to set faith-based goals. Faith-based goals. Faith-based goals. Not, not easily executable goals. Faith-based goals. Because if our goals are achievable through self-effort, then they're not big enough. I know it's a lot easier to set goals that we have the chance of achieving on our own just in case God doesn't show up. But that's a lack of faith. In actuality, that's telling God that we don't expect him to show up. Jesus said that by faith we could move mountains. And I I can tell you I don't fully know what that means. I'll be honest with you. But I also know this. Jesus wouldn't have said it if he didn't mean it. So we have to stand in that place of dealing with that. He said we could move mountains if we had faith. I got to tell you, in my own life, I find myself oftentimes living in this middle ground. This space between both faith and doubt. I think many of you might be in that same place too. We believe in God. We believe in His power even but we struggle with doubt about seeing God-sized dreams come to pass. Doubts are a reality in our lives. They're a reality. They're going to be here. They're here to stay. I don't think doubts are just going to go away. But doubts don't have to win the day. They don't. The, way, the best way to deal with doubt is to identify it and to confess it to God. We need to talk with God about our doubts. We don't need to defend our doubts, but we need to talk openly with God about our doubts. Because the great news is, people, God is not afraid of our doubts. He's not. They don't scare him. If God's not afraid of our doubts, neither should we be. One of my favorite stories in the Gospels comes from Mark chapter 9. A man has a a son that is possessed and is having convulsions. And it's been going on for many, many years. And he's at wit's end. And he comes to Jesus. And the boy's father says, have mercy on us and help us if you can. And Jesus said, what do you mean if I can? Anything is possible if a person believes. The father instantly cried out, I do believe but help me overcome my unbelief. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Do you ever feel that way? You truly believe God is able and willing to do amazing things, but 
you honestly struggle with believing that he's going to do those amazing things right here, right now, in your situation. I struggle with that. I struggle with that. I think I'm not the only one. But that's why I love this scripture so much. It's encouraging to me to see how Jesus responded to that father who was honest about both his faith and his doubts. How did Jesus respond? He healed the man's son. Jesus wasn't afraid of that man's doubts. Jesus healed his son. Setting faith-based goals means that we move forward into action. And, we, and that action is a proclamation of faith, even in the midst of our doubts, even in the face of our doubts, because we believe that God is going to act on our behalf as well. The simplest way I can put it is that we need to do what we can do and trust that God will do what only God can do. That's what this father did. That's what this father did. He, he brought his son to Jesus. He did what he could do. And he trusted that Jesus would do what only God can do. He healed his son. We've seen this in Joshua several times through this study. right? The people of Israel had a goal. They had a faith-based goal to cross the Jordan River at flood stage. Well, they did what they could do. They put their foot in the water. God did what he could do. He stopped the flow of the river. The Israelites had a goal to defeat Jericho. They did what they could do. They walked some laps and shouted. And God did what he could do. He knocked the walls down. We do what we can do and trust God to do what only he can do. And if we believe God will do great things, we can set ambitious goals, stretch goals, not easy goals, stretch goals, ambitious ones. And it may be that sometimes we don't quite make it to those goals, and maybe that's okay, because if we have a stretch goal, at least it compels us forward and propels us forward. Let me give you an example of this. Last year, last January, Adrian and Benjamin and I, my younger son and I, we participated in the Feed My Starving Children event that you, several of you in the church have participated in. It was a four-day event where this organization, Feed My Starving Children, was trying to pack a million meals to then send around the world in coordination with other uh, uh, nonprofits to feed children in desperate need. And so over a four-day period, there were these mobile pack events. And, and I'll tell you, um, actually, I, I'll say, for me, it was such a meaningful experience that I actually wrote a, a blog about it, and it's attached in your, in your uh, online sermon notes if you're interested in looking at that. But in the end of the four-day weekend, we hadn't met the one million meal goal. Talking to the guy who coordinated it, I think we were somewhere in the order of 800,000 meals. So there are two ways that we could look at this. You could say, well, we failed to meet the mark. Or you could look at it that we packed enough meals to feed a thousand malnourished children three meals a day for 266 days. A thousand kids, three meals a day, 266 days. That's nine months, people, over a four-day weekend. If that's failure, I think the church needs to fail a lot more. I'd like to see us fail like that a whole lot more. (laughs) 
Here at Grace, our faith vision is very much a set of faith-based goals. The, the desire to expand our facilities, the F part of faith vision, and to add uh, an associate pastor, the A, are specific intentional goals intended to aid us in achieving our vision of reaching our community with the love of Jesus. That's the I. The space, as we've been talking about through the Space for Grace campaign, that's going to enable us, give us opportunity to be able to reach out to the community in new ways. And an associate pastor that is focused on leadership development and spiritual growth and and helping us to identify our ministry passions and our giftings will enable us each individually with the gifts that God has given us and the passions that God has given us to go out into this community and be the people of God and love them so that we can do that I and do it well. I'm convinced God has bigger thoughts and dreams and goals for Grace Community Church. God is calling us to faith and he's calling us to high expectations. And those high expectations, I think, are going to lead us to a holy discontent. We won't be satisfied with anything less than God's best for ourselves, our family, this church, our community, even our engagement with the world. Now, I don't know if that sounds surprising to you, the fact that God might want us to be discontented. But to be content in the midst of wrong and suffering is to be complacent. As hard as it is, I'd rather that my heart be broken with the things that break the heart of God. Because then I'm going to be compelled to do something about it. Will we be satisfied with throwing a few starfish back? Or will we, in faith and with high expectations, meet with God in prayer to get his big thoughts and big dreams and big goals to save them all? Will we be satisfied? Will we be content in the wilderness? Or will we press on to the promised land with no thought for the 31 kings in the way? I think that's what God's calling us to. I want to do something a little bit different this morning. Um, Our usual sermon notes that we have uh, include on the back a part that says, for my personal time with God this week. Well, what I put together this week was too big to fit on the back, so it's a separate sheet in your, in your bulletin. Um, and this is important to me. Um, my sermon this morning, everything I've just said, accomplishes nothing. What I have just said does nothing at all. The value from this morning happens when... I and you and we together take that, take it to God, and talk to him about it, and let him show us what he wants us to do with it. James said that faith without actions is dead. We need to take action. And the first tangible action I want to ask of you is to find this thing in your bullet. If you could find it real quick, I'd like you to take it out and hold it in your hand. If you've got your bullet in there, find this six-day devotional for watching God make your life bigger. Find it and pull it out. I want to ask you to join me this week. I'll tell you, I already, uh, I I went through this this past week. Um, In part, I was preparing for the sermon, so I didn't get all the way through it. (laughs) But I wanted to do this twice. It was important enough to me that I was going to do it twice. I I want you to join with me as I walk through these six days 
of devotion with God, seeking God to understand his thoughts, his dreams, his goals. This is an invitation to spend a week in prayer and meditation, talking to God about these things, understanding what God is saying to each of you and what God is saying to us as a church. It's, you'll notice it's a very free-form devotional. It's not a fill-in-the-blank. It's, it's really intended to be an open space for you and God to connect on deep and meaningful things. And I think you'll get out of it what you put into it. But I'll say this. If you're willing to put effort into this, trust me, God will meet you there because God's willing to put his all into it for you. Will you meet him there this week? I'm going to call the the band up now. And we're going to move to our next step time. There are going to be some questions up on the screen for you to think about as we hear this song, beautiful song, an old song. Um, but it reminds us of what it is to trust in God. If you would like to participate in communion, Brian is at the back table here. Please feel free to go and, and to participate in communion. Or else just listen to the music and think, think, about these questions and how you might engage with God over the next week to understand his thoughts and dreams and goals for you.